It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, Whitney and I are constantly looking at new ways to view mental health and emotional wellness, and I suppose wellness in general, through different research studies and books. And one of the things that we love to do, of course, is give you, dear listeners, so many resources in every single episode. And recently, in doing some research around mental health and neuroplasticity and brain chemistry and all that, I stumbled on this website that I normally don't go to for this kind of information. It's a website called inverse.com, I-N-V-E-R-S-E.com. And I was actually going to inverse because it's sort of this cornucopia of research and psychedelics and medicine and science, but also pop culture. So I was actually going there, Whitney, for (laughs) some information about Star Wars and then ended up through going there for Star Wars information, stumbling on this article about brain hacking and addiction. And we've talked a lot about addiction recently. We've talked about alcoholism. We've talked about drugs. We've talked about shame. We've talked about a lot of aspects, I suppose, that are interwoven with addiction. And so when this article popped up, I immediately sent it to Whitney and said, I think we should dig into this and talk about it on the podcast. So the headline of this article is, it's a bit clickbaity in my opinion, but the information in the article is really good. So the headline is, studies show one brain hack can stop addiction cold why curiosity may be the antidote to addiction. Now, whenever I see an article that talks about hacks or shortcuts or this one thing, it makes me go, "Mm." I tend to feel a little bit skeptical about the information. So I'm glad I didn't stop because as you dig into this article, which we will link to in the show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. If you haven't been there yet, we have so many great links in our show notes. We have transcripts for every episode. So go to wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com where we will link to this article. But generally, it talks about how this psychiatrist and addiction expert, his name is Judson Brewer, talked about how willpower, we hear this word a lot, just, you know, just will it to happen. Just, you know, you need more willpower. He talks about it when it comes to addiction being a myth, how it's very pervasive, but it's actually a myth that it's sort of embedded in our collective psyche but it actually has little neuroscientific basis, which that was the first part of the article that I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because I think, Whitney, we hear about this all the time, don't we? It's just, you know, you got to have the will to succeed, the will to win, the will to conquer your negativity. And we hear this a lot, but he's sort of flipping it on its head now where he's saying there's actually very little research showing that willpower has anything to do with it. And we think about it, right? We think about skipping smoking a cigarette or, you know, skipping the gym or, you know, drinking three glasses of wine or whatever it is. And we think you just need more will. But he's saying from a flat neuroscience perspective that there's no such thing as willpower. He's saying willpower doesn't even exist. It's not how our brains work. So this guy is a researcher and professor at Brown University, and he's a medical director of behavioral health at this company called ShareCare. And he's got this book coming out, which I really, Whitney, I think it would be interesting to 
see if we can get him on the ep- the episode, the podcast here, because he has a brand new book coming out in March of 2021 called Unwinding Anxiety. And he basically says that willpower is kind of this story that's been passed around through our culture, but it's actually not true. So he says, instead of relying on the myth of willpower, that our brains actually make choices and form behavioral patterns based on built-in primitive reward-based systems. And these are called reinforcement learning. Whenever the brain has a choice, it automatically gravitates toward the highest reward or what it perceives as the most rewarding option. So he says by bringing awareness, we talk about that a lot here, and curiosity to any daily action, you upend the reward value of a habit and then in turn change your response to it. So he's saying that rather than relying on willpower, that moment-to-moment awareness, cultivating more self-awareness, that being in the moment-to-moment sensations of doing something, whether you're smoking or overeating or taking drugs or you know you sort of are addicted to anxiety, you realize that smoking, overeating, taking too many drugs, anxiety is not really all that rewarding. He said, and eventually what we do is we become disenchanted with the action that we're taking. And with time and repetition, we actually start to lose interest. So he's actually saying that mindfulness is a much more effective and scientifically proven way to battle addiction than willpower, which I think is just so fascinating. So before I dig in deeper to the article, because he talks about some patterns and, and sort of this primitive stuff, Whitney, I'm wondering how this hits you. When he says willpower doesn't exist, what's your first reaction to that? Well, it's definitely curiosity on willpower are coming a lot from a book I read on this. I think it's it's just called Willpower. And it was based in a lot of research on self-control and how willpower works. And from what I remember pulling up a little summary of it right now, willpower is like broken down into three things. Is one is that it works like a muscle. So if you use it too much, it gets worn out. There's also a a viewpoint of that willpower begets willpower, so you can train it by using it. And if you set clear goals for yourself and leave leeway for your willpower, that's ultimately a good formulation. And I think also in that same book, there's the idea that we only have a certain amount of willpower a day. And then it starts to diminish all the time. But I might be confusing that with something else that I read on our choices and decision making, which I know that that can get very fatigued. So I'm always curious to hear about willpower. And like, I mean, I guess like this article, I'm wondering, like, do they literally mean that willpower isn't a thing or doesn't work? Or is it more that we put so much emphasis on it, kind of like, we are overly focused on our willpower. It's become a phrase that we've used so much of like, oh, I don't have any willpower. Like that's the first thing that comes to mind, especially when it comes to eating. We see that so frequently, but we see this with anything that we perceive as not a good thing. So if we perceive alcohol as being good or bad or too much or too little, you know, the theme of willpower can come up. Like, I don't have willpower. I drink so much or I do drugs or maybe I have sex a lot and I can't resist like, you know, having sex with a new person or something, right? Like willpower comes up in in a lot of negative ways, I think, in our culture. So it's such an interesting subject matter to explore. Yeah. It's interesting though to, I suppose, dig into his continued research here 
which again, we're talking about Judson Brewer, who's this medical director of behavioral health and uh, addiction expert. And he's talking about reinforcement learning, that that is a much more effective way than trying to from what I intuit from the article, Whitney, it sounds like he's framing willpower as this idea that we hold that we have to overpower our addictions. And he's saying rather than trying to overpower an addiction or try and outsmart it, so to speak, that curiosity and mindfulness in his research is really the way to kind of update the reward value. So when we get a sugar rush or a sugar high, or we get a nicotine rush, or we get a dopamine hit from social media, or we get a serotonin boost from having sex, whatever it is, you know, there's a reward value chemically going on in our body. And it's interesting for him to talk about sort of these primitive patterns that this reward mechanism in our brain, this chemical reward mechanism that all of us have as human beings has been useful in the sense that you know, it's pretty much one of our oldest, I guess, neurological mechanisms to help us survive. You know, that this reward mechanism helps us to find food. It helps us to forage. It helps us to find nourishment. It helps us avoid danger. But in the modern world, it's kind of clashing with these primitive parts of our brain because, you know, these reward activities are so deeply embedded that as we repeat something, it becomes sort of entrenched as an automatic response to a trigger, right? Even when the process is rewarding. And it's super interesting because I've talked to friends of mine that have had issues with addiction, whether it's smoking or or alcohol or, or drugs. And a thing that I've had in conversation with certain people in life is I don't really even feel good doing it anymore, but I can't stop, which is fascinating to think that it's an automatic response that they're doing to a trigger in life, but they're not even finding reward in it anymore. And so the structure of mindfulness is basically that if you want to change your triggers and how you react to the triggers, you have to update the reward value. And his position is like, to update a reward value, you have to bring in self-awareness and see really, really clearly what you're actually getting from that repeated reactionary behavior. And that if you're you know, having your fifth cigarette, as an example, you know it doesn't even make you feel good anymore, but it's this automatic thing that to be more present with the experience of what's happening is really where it comes in. And he goes on to say that when people turn inward and they engage with presence, it kind of disappoints, right? It's what he calls a psychological phenomenon called negative prediction error. They're expecting it to be rewarding, but in reality, it brings a different result. So he says that there are kind of three questions. This very much kind of reminds me, Whitney, of some of Byron Katie's work that we've talked about with sort of this uh, system of self-inquiry. But He says, start by asking these questions. Can I be aware of my behaviors? Can I be aware of my thoughts, emotions, and sensations while I'm engaging in this behavior? And can I bring an attitude of curiosity to these behaviors? So instead of prejudging what you're doing, like, oh, this is really good, or this is bad, or I'm a good person, or I'm a bad person, I have willpower, I don't have willpower. He's saying that mindfulness and curiosity and asking yourself high quality questions is a way to really observe what's happening. And by being more aware, you can start to remove sort of a subjective bias, which is interesting, right? Because I think with addiction, Whitney, and and you and I talk about judgment, and we've had some great episodes on shame recently too. I think, you know, when, when we do things like smoke, take drugs, overeat, eat too much sugar, eat too much fat, have too much sex, we could name a million different things. There is that sort of subjective bias of I'm doing something bad, I should stop. This is bad. I'm a bad person. There's a lot of self-judgment wrapped up in this. 
And he's saying that the self-judgment is not really the way to undo the behavior. And I have to agree with that. You know, I, I notice myself beating myself up mentally for certain things that I do, and it doesn't make me stop. It's not like being punitive or being cruel to myself or saying I'm a bad person for doing certain things is going to stop it because it, it never really works that way. Yeah, it is interesting because I think a lot of our perceptions around how to go about life come from misinformation and things that are passed around. They're often based on other people's experiences, very anecdotal. But if they're not scientifically backed or backed by research, or perhaps even part of your intuition. I don't it it can be start to become really confusing and we can try a lot of things that aren't really getting us to where we want to go and so we're just kind of going about life a little bit haphazardly or feeling really frustrated all the time because things aren't working. And I think this is one of the reasons that I really love to read books and dive into this and understand life from different studies. And uh, one book that I'm really into right now is called Atomic Habits. We'll link to this and Willpower and the other books are in this article that we're referencing here too at wellevator.com. Again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And in Atomic Habits, it it really dives deep into how to build habits. And it's actually a bit overwhelming, but in a good way, because there's just so much information about habits. And reading this book has just gotten me to think about things really differently, you know, and the way that it ties into this idea of willpower, right? And, And noticing that it's more about setting up the right processes for myself, the right system so that I'm in a place of success that I'm, I'm working with my brain, you know, like not against it, not like trying to will myself to do something. It's more like if I just set myself up for success, that I'm more likely to ease myself into that. And sometimes it's about doing really small things. In fact, that's a part of the book that I think I read recently. It's hard to keep track because there's just so many nuggets of wisdom in there. But one part that I found like really fascinating is that a lot of people actually will only allow themselves to do a tiny bit of a new habit in the beginning because it's found that just taking one small step consistently will move you into doing more over time. And I think what happens to a lot of us is we try to dive into something so quickly, so rapidly, and then like we're burnt out by it at a certain point. But what if we just like did the very first step of something and then paused there? Like an example of it was this guy that went to the gym and all he did was go to the gym for five minutes and then he forced himself to leave after five minutes. And over time, he started to want to be there and it became part of his habit. He was already there so he would stay longer. But in the beginning, it actually helped him to put barriers. And I think mentally that makes a lot of sense. Like when we think about food, for example, like what if it's it's breaking it down into steps that are going to help you get closer to it and then starting with one of them. So let's say, for example, you're thinking to yourself, I, I want to eat less sugar, but I have no willpower, right? That's that's like a very common thing people will say. Well, what if you break that down? Okay, is your goal to be sugar-free? Is your goal to eat a lot less sugar? What if tomorrow or today, whenever you want to start, you just simply eat 
one less bite than you would normally eat. And you allow yourself to eat the rest of it, but you're just starting with one less bite, right? Now, I don't know if I'm getting that advice completely perfect. I actually highly recommend reading the book Atomic Habits. I'm still like learning to understand this properly, but that's my current understanding. And I think that actually is a lot better because that it kind of leads me to this idea of cold turkey, Jason. Like whether you're quitting something or you're starting something new, it's like, I'm going to go all in. It's all or nothing. And I don't know if our brains really adapt that quickly, right? Like it's a bit of a shock to the system. I think it also depends a lot on our personalities. For me, I tend to do pretty well cold turkey, but only when I want to. So I, I went vegetarian literally overnight. I have not had any piece of meat that I know of, <laughs> unless it slipped into my food somehow, but like no meat whatsoever since, oh gosh, I, for, I used to know the day off the top of my head. I think it was May something in 2003. But I remember the last meal I had and I've never gone back. So that cold turkey thing worked well for me. However, when I went vegan, it took me a little longer because I think I was more hooked on the dairy foods than I was on the meats. And so it was a very gradual process of me slowly integrating that into my life. And I wasn't even trying to make it gradual. That's just kind of how it happened for me. And so in summary, cold turkey might work for you, but maybe you should just try going a little slower step by step. And that might actually lead to more sustainable change and better habits. And that also can let you ease off of your feelings about willpower. I think the example you brought up was really interesting, Wit, because... To me, what comes up is, again, going back to this idea of behavioral change and how the chemical reward systems in our neurobiology work, which is one of the foundations of the article and the topic we're discussing, that with meat, there's not as much of a chemical addictive quality as there is cheese, to use your specific example. And how many people that I've worked with and coached, and I'm sure you've heard this ad nauseum over the years, is, yeah, I could definitely be vegetarian, but I could, quote, never give up cheese. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I would be launching rockets to Mars. And I think it's interesting because you know we dig into this chemical reward idea that our brains are constantly looking for the highest level of reward for the least amount of effort. That's something that we've referenced in the book, The Pleasure Trap by Dr. Doug Lyle and Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Also a phenomenal book when we talk about addiction, habit change, and how certain foods and, and chemicals and, and foods affect us on a neurobiological level. But the point is, is that cheese, chemically speaking, is far more addictive than meat, as an example, Whitney, right? So it's like, okay, I went cold turkey vegetarian overnight, but it took me a lot longer with veganism. I had the same experience. And I remember the first person that I learned about the difference was Dr. Neil Bernard. And he said, yeah, the reason cheese is technically more addictive for your brain chemistry is that because it has casomorphines. And the casomorphines are there so that calves will nurse on their mothers longer, right? It's a chemical compound that gets their neurobiology going so that they nurse and grow and get the nutrients they need. But unfortunately for humans, the casomorphines work on us in the same way in the sense that they light up the pleasure centers in the brain like a morphine-based drug would do. So our addiction to cheese is the same basic chemical componentry of certain drug addictions. And when I looked into that research from Dr. Bernard, I was like, holy shit, it's no wonder people can't get off cheese because they are literally chemically addicted to it. 
So it's interesting you bring that up because I also think, Wit, about things that I suppose I've given up or drastically reduced over the years. And it's because I didn't feel that much reward from it. You know what I mean? You brought up meat. We have talked about sobriety and we've talked about alcohol here on, on the podcast in several episodes. And alcohol was never a drug that, quote, did it for me. You know, it was like, oh, I feel so great. If I really checked into my body and to again, go back to kind of the philosophy that Brewer's uh, talking about in this article is that, you know, my reward system for alcohol or meat was not like, wow, I can't give this up. But when it comes to cheese, to use your example, or you brought up sugar, which has been one of my big, big challenges, it continues to be. I mean, I still feel like I eat, quote, too much sugar, you know, that I'm full and I'm satiated, but I just keep eating. So I think for each one of us, I guess, you know, our, what is the word I want to use here? I don't know. Vices is kind of overused, but that's probably the best thing I can come up with. Our vices are going to be different from person to person. You know what I'm saying? And it's interesting, you know, I just want to dip back into another part of this article. He talks about this data set of researching and doing studies with hundreds of people. And he's noticed that a lot of people that have these sort of addictive behaviors, they become disenchanted with these habits they've been doing for years, you know, from eating too much chocolate, relatable to cocaine to whatever it is. And in one of these studies who was a longtime smoker, this patient had a visceral and consistent feeling of disgust when she had mindfulness in the, the moment-to-moment experience of smoking her cigarettes. And in the study, she said that it basically smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Like she was disgusted by her smoking. And Brewer goes on to say it takes 10 to 15 times of someone engaging in this mindfulness practice, this self-awareness, paying attention to see that the reward value starts to drop or even go below zero. And so he's you know, basically gone on to say that this mindfulness, this quote brain hack they're talking about that subverts addictive behaviors sometimes works better than other, I guess, standard treatments. And in a 2011 study he did after four months of treatment, he find that mindfulness and self-awareness practices were five times better at helping people quit smoking than other, I guess, sort of standard treatment programs. So it's interesting because I think what this brings up for me, Whitney, is like, I hear what he's saying around awareness, and he's got more here that we'll get into as I go through this article, but to transpose this on my own stuff, right? My own stuff that I think I might have addictive behaviors toward, I'll have a moment of awareness where I realize that I'm not feeling good eating like, I don't know, the second or third slice of chocolate cake. As an example, I had... (laughs) I had a piece of chocolate cake for breakfast this morning. Full disclosure, okay? Getting uncomfortable here for a second because I'm probably beating myself up for this inside. But it was like there was a point where I was good with the chocolate cake. You know, I was satiated. I felt full, but I kept eating it. There was something in me that was like, okay, you know you're full. You know that each bite isn't as pleasurable as the first one, but you just keep going. So I really want to dig into more of his work because I feel like self-awareness is a good starting point. But I don't think self-awareness is necessarily like the skeleton key, per se, that can automatically conquer addiction. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like, okay, I'm aware that I'm eating too much of this, but I also observe that I'm not stopping right now. So I don't think self-awareness, it's almost like that's the foundation, but not necessarily like the whole picture here. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting. I think just examining our behavior and our tendencies is such a great starting place. I mean, that's kind of been 
the cornerstone of our advice on this podcast has been revolved around awareness. It's like, okay, well, you're aware that you ate this cake. You're aware that you feel some sort of guilt or something about eating it. And you're a little embarrassed to share that. And you're aware that you would prefer not to do things like that. Right? You know, this also leads me to, as part of this conversation, right before we started recording today, I saw this video on TikTok that simultaneously triggered me, but also felt like something I wanted to hear, if that makes sense. Like, oh, <laughs> interesting. It was, uh, okay, I'll, I'll start with why it triggered me. I can't remember all the details without going back and listening to it on air, but I can link to it in the show notes uh, for those that are interested in watching it themselves. And this is what I remember of it. I think it was a nutritionist or, or a dietitian or somebody that specializes in, in helping people with food saying, like rattling off all of these trendy things that we do to lose weight or get in shape or, you know, manage our body in one way or another. And she's like, you know, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. This blah, 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 on and on and on. And her ultimate point was that the most sustainable way to be in relationship with your body is through intuitive eating. And this is something that I started researching. I guess it's been like a year and a half or so ago. I decided to dive more into it because I was starting to see a lot of content online around anti-dieting. And that was in partnership with body positivity. And for me, I've struggled so much with my body over the years and had some disordered eating. And so I'm very curious about anything related to food and our bodies and our mindset around it. And anyways, she was rattling off things like keto and fasting. And I don't know, she listed all of these other trendy things, right? And I think that's why I got triggered because I'm a big fan of the keto diet. But I think I take a different approach to keto than the mainstream does in terms of like, I'm not looking at it as some trendy fad diet. I look at keto as something that actually feels really good for me right now in my body. And speaking of awareness, I really tune into myself when it comes to food as much as possible and try to ask myself frequently, like, why am I choosing this food? Am I choosing this because it tastes good? Am I choosing this because I think it makes my body feel good? Am I choosing this because I want to lose weight? Am I choosing this because I'm afraid of something or I'm craving? I want comfort. Like, I try to ask a lot of those questions. And I like the concept of intuitive eating because that's ultimately part a huge part of it, which is tuning into your body and having a more balanced relationship with it and looking at food as nourishment and looking at food not from this place of fear all the time, which I think many of us operate under and judgment too. Like even hearing you feel embarrassed about eating that cake, Jason, part of me was like, well, why? Like you wanted to have that cake. What's so bad about that? And I think it's because many of us grow up judging food perhaps our parents, our teachers, our friends, the media, like there's so many messages about food that we feel confused and uncomfortable with it in a lot of ways. So this TikTok was interesting. It wasn't new information, but I think it is really important information to remind us that like dieting technically doesn't work. And I remember when I first started reading about anti-dieting, I was like, 
confused by that statement. I thought like, what do you mean dieting doesn't work? But when I started to look into the research about it, it's like, yeah, like, you know, statistically it doesn't work. Statistically, people tend to gain that weight back as soon as they stop eating a certain way. And, you know, my relationship with keto is interesting because I've only been experimenting with keto for, let's see, like two and a half years or less. And I've been off and on it. And so my weight has fluctuated a bit, right? Because when I first did keto, like many people experience, I lost a good amount of weight. And that felt exciting because that was my goal at the time. And then when I wasn't doing keto, it felt like it was kind of balanced. But then like I swung in a different direction and started eating a ton of carbohydrates and processed foods and sugars and all this stuff. And the weight came back on. And so now I'm at a point where I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to experiment with going back on keto because I remember it felt really good. And I do remember that it helped me feel more balanced in my body, but I'm not sure that it's the best thing for me. And I'm not sure if it's sustainable, but I'm looking at it as an approach and I'm trying to take a more intuitive approach to it. So when I sit down to eat something, I think, okay, well, does this food qualify as keto or low carb? Yes or no. And then when I have that answer, I think, all right, well, am I okay with this decision? Yes or no? And it's like, great. So if this food happens to be keto and I'm feeling good about eating it, awesome. If the food isn't keto and I feel good about eating it, that's still awesome because that's what I want in that moment. And to me, I feel like that's working really well and that's good for me emotionally versus a lot of the mentality and approach that people have to keto and other diets is a super extreme of black and white. Like it's either keto and great for you or it's not keto and you're going to gain a ton of weight and it's bad for you. People say the same thing about paleo and all these different ways of eating. I mean, certainly we've seen the opposite end of, of keto where people thinking keto is the worst thing in the world. And by the way, like I eat a plant-based keto. So it's very different from animal-based keto, which is loaded with <laughs> crazy foods. Plant-based keto is is very literal and that's based in plants. But my point being like we see the opposite end as we've talked about a number of times, Jason, like the salt, oil and sugar-free people. And when you brought up the pleasure trap, there was a little part of me that cringed because like when I think of the pleasure trap, I think two things. One is, wow, yeah, there's so much great data in it. But two, from what I recall, that book is encouraging you not to eat things like salt, oil, and sugar. And like that feels super restrictive to me. And also I associate salt, oil, and sugar-free people as being really judgmental. And that's like viewing them as a whole. But knowing some big people in that movement, like there's so much shame It's if you eat oil or if you eat salt or sugar. And so like the other day, Jason... A friend of mine read The Pleasure Trap and now is in this whole like, oh my God, oil's the worst thing ever for you. Whereas for me, I don't view oil as bad. Intuitively, I really enjoy oil. I try to focus on the high quality oils. In fact, a little shout out right now, which we haven't talked about, Jason. <laughs> Go on. I recently got a new oil product that I'm so excited about. It's uh, from this company called Milkadamia, which makes amazing macadamia-based products. They have fantastic milks, creamers. I've been talking about these in my book about coffee. And they recently sent me their new macadamia nut oils. And they have a high smoke point. And they're so rich 
and I, I have to go, I'm going to look them up when you start talking again, Jason, so I can share a little bit more. But to me, they just feel so pure and so high quality. And macadamia nut oil isn't really talked about that much. But I've done a ton of research on oil. And a lot of people say that coconut oil, avocado oil, and olive oil are actually the top three oils that don't have a lot of negative sides to them. It's just that some people are so anti-oil, they are like no oil whatsoever. And that to me like makes me feel uncomfortable and tight and unhappy. And I'm like, no, that's just not for me. I think that's ultimately my big point here is it's like we have to figure out what works well for us and balance that with some research. And I think that is part of what makes this whole process incredibly tricky. It is really tricky because I think that what we come up against, as you alluded to, Whitney, is factions of people who engage in absolutism and also purity culture. We actually talk about purity culture a lot at length with Nick Jaworski in our episode with him that I'm not sure that it'll be out, probably will not be out by the time of this recording, but it's a likely going to be a future episode. But check that out with Nick Jaworski. We talk a lot about purity culture. And and I think that purity culture, Whitney, is very deeply intertwined with the health and wellness and transformational fields that we, you and I operate in, we run our business in, and, and certainly you and I do a ton of research with. I think this idea that there is one right way of eating, one right way of working out, one right way of worshiping, one right way of expressing one's sexuality is an endemic part of it. You know, I think a lot of people, myself included, for a long time have wanted to discover the proverbial holy grail. You know, this is the thing. This is the way that I'm going to eat, live, move, worship, make love, whatever it is. Like, this is the way. This is the way to take from the Mandalorian. And I've noticed that it's a big thing. It's a big thing with influencers online of this purity culture of, you know, no fat, no sugar, no salt, no oil. I'm celibate, high vibes only. And to my whole thing, it's like, I can understand if you are doing it for, I mean, I suppose everyone's got their reasons. Who am I to judge people's reasons? Because I too remember back in the day when I was doing 100% raw, Whitney, when I graduated from Living Light and for the first few years after that, I was on that raw train. I was just like, what temperature was it cooked at? Was it over 118 degrees? <laughs> I mean, I was very militant and also very mindful, but to the point where I was causing myself a lot of distress. And I remember reading a book about orthorexia around 2009. And I remember making that pivot in 2009, going back to eating cooked foods again and feeling how good my body felt, allowing myself to have hot soup or quinoa or a stir fry or whatever it was. And realizing that I was engaging in this purity culture, I thought that if I just ate 100% raw plant-based foods and I was you know, doing my meditation and doing my Jiva Mukti yoga and all the things I was like, it was almost like that system of check boxes we've talked about. I think we talked about this in our episode with Taylor of, yeah, I'm eating raw, I'm going to yoga, I'm doing my mantras, I'm, you know, whatever. And I think it's like, I don't know, humans have this desire, I think, for improvement or optimization. But what is the point? Is the point to be better than everyone? And I think if I'm honest about it, there was this thing motivating me of like, I'm going to be the best vegan ever. I'm going to be the most pure raw foodist and I'm, I'm going to be pure and I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be all these things. I had this idea of 
I don't know. It's sort of like to piggyback on what Alex Ebert was talking about on Instagram earlier this week. We'll link to his Instagram account. He's got some great stuff. It's this idea that Nietzsche, the philosopher, had about the Ubermensch, the Superman, that if we are self-empowered and we're living in this optimal way that is the peak of human evolution, then we're greater than everyone. We've unlocked our full potential. And there's a lot of kind of dark downsides to that conversation. But in this sense, Whitney, I feel like I'm able to talk about purity culture because I was engaged in it. And I realized that I was being so restrictive and I was being so in this egotistical, like I have to be the optimal version of myself. And I feel like that really is something that still affects us today. You know, this optimization culture, this upgrade culture is so pervasive and it can make you absolutely fucking crazy too. So to go deeper into this article about habit change, I wanted to share another few points here about mindfulness and how this affects our willpower and our habits. So in these studies that I mentioned earlier, that mindfulness has been shown in these studies to be as good or better than medication in curbing symptoms and addiction, that he's saying that awareness and mindfulness can really get to the root of the problem. And of course, there's more studies going on. This is never anything that we ever posit at as the end-all be-all. But putting mindfulness into practice, you know, it kind of appears simple, right? Intuitive, like just be aware of what you're doing in the moment. But practicing, I think, awareness and curiosity isn't always super easy, especially in times of stress, anxiety, panic. You know, going inward and looking at yourself isn't really necessarily the easiest thing. When you're feeling peaceful and calm, yeah, it feels easy to go inside. But when you're stressed the hell out, it can be a little bit tough. You know, and old habits are familiar, right? They're they're comfortable. So anytime we make efforts to move out of our comfort zone, typically it can kind of incite a little bit of panic. But I think that, you know, with what he's encouraging, if we engage in more awareness, curiosity, and mindfulness, we can start to experience a little bit of growth. So near the end of this article, he talks about the three steps for habit change. Number one, we've talked about self-awareness, that the first step to being able to recognize a repeated habit loop and map out the components, right? So self-awareness means identifying what triggers a consistent behavior, how the behavior make you f- makes you feel, and then what are the ultimate results of that behavior, and that this can help you better evaluate the true reward or risk of habitual behavior. And number two is curiosity, getting curious and not judgmental or punitive about your cravings and addictions basically flips the balance from the unpleasantness of a craving to the pleasantness of curiosity, just observing yourself and being curious about it. And this exercise of being curious becomes more intrinsically rewarding, and then you can start to identify alternatives that are potentially more attractive than the old habit. And then the last thing is, number three, pinpoint the BBO, which stands for Bigger, Better Offer. It's interesting. So this means to be curious and find behaviors that are actually more rewarding than the habit you're currently trying to break. And, you know, maybe that's exercise, moving your body, the mindfulness practice, or just engaging in asking the right questions. So each time that a craving comes on, he's saying, repeat these steps, engage in self-awareness, become more curious and ask questions, and then pinpoint your bigger, better offer. And I think I I actually want to put this into, into practice, Whitney, around, we mentioned chocolate cake, you know, my thing is still sugar. I feel like Yeah. When I get stressed, when I feel lonely, I was feeling super, super lonely last night. I tend to reach and overeat sugar. So I actually want to put this into practice. What 
you know, what Judson Brewer is positing in this article. And I am curious again to get my hands on his new book called Unwinding Anxiety, because, you know, my whole life I've thought that willpower was a thing. To go back to the original start of this episode, that all I had to do was just, I suppose when I think of willpower, you know, I don't know, be stronger than my addictions or overpower it. But this idea of self-awareness, curiosity, and finding a bigger, better offer, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into practice and just see how it works and maybe report back with the findings. But it is interesting to think about, I don't know, it's interesting to think about, you know, bringing curiosity instead of judgment. We've talked about that too. And I think that's something I still need to work on because I am still way too hard on myself with certain things. But it is interesting to think about asking different questions and, you know, seeing what those answers come, what those bring. Absolutely. And I think this does come a lot down to asking ourselves, like, are we being too hard (laughs) on this situation? Are we being too hard on ourselves? Are we being too hard on others? You know, because it, it also isn't just about our own willpower. Sometimes we can accuse other people of not having enough willpower themselves. And that can put us in a place of righteousness and judgment, just as we've been talking about. And I'm trying to be more accepting of people who are making different choices. I'm trying to be more accepting of people who are at different stages and maybe moving at different paces than me and recognizing that habits are a huge challenge for a lot of people. A lot of people struggle with consistency and it's okay. You know, (laughs) a lot of people struggle with guilt and shame and all of these different topics that we've been touching upon on this show. So it's a very human experience, I suppose. And I've also found that I go through a lot of different phases. And maybe the the older I get, the more time I've spent in my life, I recognize that life truly is a common up and down. It's it's not about reaching some point and feeling satisfied there. You will experience those waves in your emotions. You'll experience waves in your body. You'll experience waves in your desires. And going back to what you said, Jason, about this purity culture mentality, it's like, to me, that feels restrictive. And I think we've each been through those phases. I've done the raw food diet as well, you know, and I actually really enjoyed it. I found it interesting and rewarding, refreshing, like raw food is lovely. And now I still eat raw food. You know, lately I've been enjoying blueberries and (laughs) I've been enjoying really great salads. And I find a lot of pleasure from eating those foods, but I also find pleasure from eating cooked foods. I find pleasure in low carb foods for the most part. But man, like there's a bag of potato chips in in my place right now and I'm looking forward to eating those. And I, I suppose for me, it's more about having those and enjoying them and maybe having a little bit of moderation so that I don't go overboard. Because I think the way our brains work is sometimes when we go overboard, it causes a, a kind of avalanche of us making choices that we perhaps don't really want to make. And going back to The Pleasure Trap, it's a great book in that it explains the way our brain works in a really interesting way and how we're, we're just so prone to go for the pleasure. And both that book and I believe it's in Atomic Habits. Gosh, I'm, I'm starting to mix a lot of them up right now. But I know I've read in several places. Yeah, I'm almost positive it's in, I read that in Atomic Habits recently, how, how we are as human beings go for the things that are easy and convenient. And there's no shame in that because that's the way our brains are programmed and wired. Like 
that's part of the human experience. And I think that ties into willpower and that sometimes we're just trying to fight against ourselves so much. And maybe if we just ease up and say, all right, like it's human to want convenience. It's human to want something that's easy. And I can set myself up for success in different ways and to get into habits so that maybe I'm I'm focused on different elements of ease. And this comes up in, in atomic habits. Like, okay, well, as a human being, I like things that are easy and convenient. So how can I make the things that I want to do more easy and convenient? And how can I make the things that I don't want harder? So some of the things that um, his James Clear, let me make sure I'm saying the right author. Yes. James Clear is, is who wrote Atomic Habits. Another great tidbit of advice he has in there is like, okay, if you want to watch less TV, how can you make that harder? Can you move the TV into a different room that you wouldn't enjoy being in as much as another? Can you unplug the TV so every time you want to watch it, you can't just click the remote, you have to go plug it in. And in that experience of doing so, you're adding resistance and you're making it harder. So maybe you're going to be too lazy to plug in the television, right? If you want to eat foods that are more raw and fresh and less processed, fill your fridge with them. And so if you want to get more processed foods, you're going to have to go buy them. And that in itself is resistance. And so by by creating more of that structure in life where you're adding more ease and convenience in the ways that you really love, I think that is like setting yourself up for massive success and and working with your quote willpower if it does in fact exist and working with a sense of control that is a lot simpler than a lot of the ways that we tend to think of things you know if you want to work out how can you make working out easier uh, the classic way is putting out your workout clothes the day before it's you know these days during covid for me i'm working out at home i used to go to in-person classes. And that was hard. That was a big commitment. But I got into the habit of it, so it became easier. Now, my habit is working out at home. And so it's on my calendar. I can put my clothes out. I can have my hand weights out and my yoga mat and all of that stuff. It's all set up. It's ready to go. All I have to do is show up for it. So I've made it simple. And now it's actually even simpler than it ever was before. And thus, the habit is just there's so much less resistance involved with that whole process. I think a sort of a related tip or strategy to, you know, you're talking about your preparation and, and uh, dissolving resistance, Whitney, by having your workout stuff ready. For me, when I have perceived a behavior, a repetitive behavior or a habit that is really not resulting in the things that I would want in life. One example, and I, it's interesting, I haven't even thought about this for a while. One of my big goals is to pay off my credit card debt, which you've mentioned that as well in previous episodes, Whitney, I'm on the same boat. And I feel really grateful that I've been able to just hack away at it pretty consistently. But one thing that has helped me tremendously that I just realized now was about a year, maybe a year and a half, year and a quarter ago, I took all but one of my credit cards out of my wallet and I put them in a box and put it in a, a lightly used drawer in a corner of my house so that it's not they're not in my wallet it's not easy for me to go in you know with impulse purchases per se just to whip out any one of those credit cards like four or five of them and i realized that one of the components of my habitual 
you know, debt accumulation was that I'd be out and I'd have four to five cards in my wallet to choose from. And it was this illusion of like, oh, well, there's not much of a balance on that one. So I'll keep use that, using that one. But then it just became, you know, adding up, adding up, adding up on all of the cards. Once I took the cards out of my wallet and put them in a box in the corner of the house in a drawer that I don't access that often. I, first of all, have not been accumulating that much debt because I'm not using those cards, right? It's just, I'm not using them. And a similar strategy to me was with the sugar thing for me, debt and sugar are kind of like my two (laughs) things, is if there's not a stack of chocolate bars in the house, then there's not going to be chocolate for me to eat. And that sounds kind of horrifying for me to say because I love chocolate. But, you know, right now I don't have any chocolate bars in the house. So I know for me, And you know, when I ate the chocolate cake this morning, I think maybe it was also part of me being like, well, if you just eat it all now, then you won't be tempted to eat more of it later. So just eat all of it in one sitting. But I I think it's a similar thing that if we, for me at least, if I have a thing where I'm recognizing there's a mechanism, whether it's a stack of credit cards in my wallet or a stack of chocolate bars in my cabinet, if I don't have easy access to them and they're not physically present in my space all the time, then I'm not going to abuse them and overuse them. And I think for me, that's been a strategy that's worked. And I'm also wanting to look at other aspects of my life and how, how I can adopt that behavior. And, and I also don't feel, as a result, Whitney, any sort of restriction. I'm not like, oh, God, I wish I had my five credit cards all the time so I could spend shit that I don't need. Or I wish I had a stack of chocolate bars at all time. It's interesting that as I've reduced those and had more mindfulness around my usage, it's not something that I feel like has affected my, you know, negatively affected my life, if that makes sense. You know, I'm not wishing that I had those things. So I just wanted to say that because that's a strategy that's been useful to me is, is not having easy access to those things that engage in those habitual behaviors. Absolutely. And it does really work. And that's coming back around to our number one tip, which is having the awareness, starting off with what habits do you want to create? What things do you want to let go of? What habits do you want to get out of? And starting to break them down using tools that are backed in research, like from this article we mentioned and also the book Atomic Habits. And I feel like there's one other great habits book that I've read in the past couple of years. The name is escaping me in this moment, but I feel like books are such amazing tools. And if you know that they're done from a place of not trying to like be salesy, but from a place of deep research, like you can start to implement these things and they can be incredibly effective. And having the the knowledge behind your actions can set you up for better success. You know, like when I go through a book like Atomic Habits, I'm, I feel like empowered. I feel that, oh, I've got the tools now so I can implement this and move forward in a way that's backed by research. And I'm not just trying to guess my way through life and trying to piece things together. I'm not just using information I collected on Instagram or TikTok or wherever else, you know, not that that information isn't useful, but I personally love reading like the articles that you shared and and books that we've talked about today. And I think it's also helpful to recognize that, you know, not everything that we see on social media is going to be based in fact. Sometimes it's based in the trend or somebody's strong opinion. And coming back to what we said earlier when it comes to eating, it's hard to untangle ourselves from this world of everyone trying to find the perfect way of eating, the perfect exercise, and the perfect way of living. And 
ultimately for me, that ends up making me feel worse about myself and too constrained. And and then I get into this mindset of like doing it right or wrong and failing or succeeding. And I would like life to feel a little bit more fluid and balanced and and accepting. So I just try what I want. And, (laughs) you know, going back to what I said earlier, if I'm the little um, piece of information about that macadamia oil I mentioned, that company Milkadamia, gosh, like they're overall, they're vegan and they're very keto friendly, which I love about them. And if you're curious about the oils, they are traditional cold pressed, which is something that I feel like a lot of the recommendations I've read about oils, like single ingredient, cold pressed in a good container, like a nice glass container, you should be, and I am trying not to use the word should, it's recommended that you consume an oil within a few months because it's it can actually start to go bad quickly. And what I also love about macadamia nuts, which gosh, just saying the word macadamia <laughs> like makes me drool because that was a very exciting part of going keto for me because I love macadamia nuts and it's it's one of those like indulgent food that is recommended to have a lot. They're full of omega-3s and 6s and antioxidants and can actually be anti-inflammatory. So they're very satisfying. And for me, that's why I've chosen uh, a higher fat diet and I don't mind having oil. For those of you that are not into eating oil, I want to remind you like just having macadamia nuts whole is a really great choice. Having whole avocados, like... Sometimes it's just about having the original food and not having it in oil form. And uh, that's actually something that pretty much everyone can agree upon. So <laughs> I think the moral of the story is here is, is think about what you're aiming for, find what works for you, experiment, do some research, check out books and articles like we have. We're dedicated to sharing what we're learning and encouraging you along the way. And, and also ultimately a place where you can feel a lot of acceptance. Uh, we're really working on approaching life with less judgment and letting people know that we're all on a journey figuring things out and we might not always agree on on it, but I think if we can come from a loving place and a peaceful, patient place that that brings a lot more balance into our lives. So well said and a beautiful summary, Whitney. So, dear listener, We want to hook you up with all the resources we mentioned, of course, starting off with that Inverse article where you can dig into more of the research and tips around self-awareness and curiosity and asking the right questions. If you are facing addiction in your life and want some new resources, we will link to that article. All of the books we mentioned, any of the resources in our show notes for this episode, you'll find it all at wellevator.com. Dot com. Again, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Simply click on the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes and the entire episode transcript for what you are listening to now and all of our previous episodes. And of course, we've got some great free resources there. We've got three incredible eBooks, two video trainings. And then if you want to go even a level deeper, we have two great courses, Wellness Warrior Training and the consistency code. So check that all out on our website. And if you want to reach out to Whitney and myself, shoot us an email. The address is hello at wellevator.com. And we are on all of the social media networks, including Clubhouse. We've mentioned that in a few episodes. If you find yourself there, you can connect with Whitney and myself. We're there talking about digital wellness, mental health, social media marketing, whole litany of different subjects. So 
We hope to see you there or on Instagram or any of the social platforms you prefer to connect with us at. And until next time, thank you for getting uncomfortable with us. Thanks for being in our community. We feel so grateful for your presence, your listenership, your reviews, and you sharing these episodes with your friends and loved ones. Thanks again, and we will see you with another episode really soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.